Welcome to season two of the Coalition for Disabilities Talk and Disability podcast. Season one was titled Queering Ability, and this season is titled Including Ability. I'm Sarah Shopper, and I currently serve as the research coordinator for the Coalition for Disability within ACPA Student Educators International. Today, I'll be talking about disability defined, thinking intersectionally about terminology and experience, with our special guests, Zeke Kimball, who is an associate dean and associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Rachel Friedensen, who is an assistant professor of higher education administration at St. Cloud State University. Let's get started. Welcome to both our guests. Hello. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. This season's episodes are all about the monograph published at the end of 2021 titled Creating Inclusivity While Providing Accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. You can find this publication for free at myacpa.org, and I'll provide the link to it in the notes of this podcast. The two authors of Chapter 3 are today's guests. Chapter three talks about defining disability and thinking intersectionally about terminology and experience. Again, Rachel and Zeke, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thankful you were able to join us for the conversation. As you both know, I've already shared with our listeners the topic of your chapter. Let's start um, with each of you sharing a little bit with the listeners about why you decided to contribute to this chapter. Rachel, we'll start with you. I guess for our listeners, Zeke is my doctoral advisor and mentor. So when he shoots me an email and says, do you want to write a chapter about disability identity? I usually answer with, yeah, sure. But this is also an extension of a piece that we wrote that was published, I think in 2017 or maybe 2019. I have no remember, no memory anymore about disability identity and the various dimensions that go into trying to define it because it's quite complex as our chapter talks about. Zeke, same question for you. How is it that you learned about the Coalition for Disability monograph? Um, So I was invited to contribute uh, this chapter specifically. I I think it probably stems from the fact that uh, at one point in the in the past I was the research coordinator for the, the coalition myself. Uh, And so as part of that work, uh, one of the things that we talked about was the idea that we needed to do a better job communicating with student affairs professionals broadly about the importance of understanding disability and the importance of addressing ableism on campus. One of the first studies that I did uh, as a a full-time faculty member looked at the way in which student affairs professionals conceptualize disability. Um, And it was kind of a a good news, bad news situation. The good news is that student affairs professionals were really drawing on a deep reservoir of skills that they had related to social justice and inclusion and micro level counseling skills and group level facilitation. And they were working really hard to support disabled students. On the other hand, uh, the vast majority of the people that we spoke with had never really talked about disability in the context of graduate preparation programs and had also been student affairs professionals for a very long time without really encountering disability 
in terms of in-service training or as a major focus for a professional association conference. And so it felt to them like a major skills gap. And one of the things that I've long been interested in uh, is how we, how we come to think about students and student success in the way that we do. Um, and so just the fact that we weren't really starting the conversation about disability until student affairs professionals were being uh, being confronted with the reality that like one in four of their students are disabled um, struck me as a real problem because it meant that we weren't really giving ourselves the opportunity to process disability and disability inclusion in the fullest and most complete way possible. And it also meant that, well, an awful lot of the practice was really good because it was coming from kind of the right place philosophically and conceptually, there was also a real opportunity to incorporate some bias into, into our work, not necessarily intentionally, not maliciously, um, but because we, we all, whether we have a disability or not, live within an ableist society, it's, it's very easy to replicate ableism without knowing that we're doing it. Having work that we can look at and, and really use as a guide for our action as a, and as a check on our own biases is really important. And so when I got the, the invite, it was, it was a really easy yes for me because I, I love to talk about disability. I love to talk about student affairs practice. This was an opportunity to bring the two together. And then knowing the way that the book would be shared and the fact that it would be so accessible to so many um, made it just the quickest yes possible. Awesome. So kind of um, building on that a little bit, your chapter, as I, inter as I said in the introduction, is about defining disability. And you kind of shared with us a little bit about what you had noticed was going on in the field or has been going on in the field. Is there anything you would want to add about and share with us about your experience specifically with your chapter's topic? And Zeke, I'll start with you. Yeah, so um, in a, a former professional life, I was the director of student affairs at a really small college. Um, we had about 450 students when I was there. Um, I ended up in that role on a, an interim basis when my boss left the institution. And the day that I became the interim director, someone handed me a binder and said, oh, by the way, you're also the ADA coordinator. And that was my introduction to disability support on college and university campuses. Um, and what I came to realize over the, the time that I was doing that work, and then as a graduate student being told, well, you can't really do research about disability in higher ed. If you want to do that, you have to do it in special education. And then eventually as a director of institutional research at a small college, we, we weren't thinking about disability in a terribly intentional way, broadly speaking. So it wasn't just that I had had one really idiosyncratic experience. It was every experience that I had had and then every experience that I talked to others about and really just kind of recognizing that we weren't doing a good job onboarding people to think about disability in terribly intentional ways. So I, I think the biggest experience that I have and probably the most relevant experience to this chapter is being confused um, as a early career professional and then later as someone who is a little bit more experienced in my career and still being confused. 
Um, and this despite being a, a disabled person myself, right? Like I have an experience of navigating the world with a disability, and yet I was still shockingly ill-prepared to support disabled students. And so that really is the experience set that I brought to bear on this, on this chapter, really trying to figure out, well, if I were way back at the beginning of my developmental journey related to disability and ableism and just beginning to think about what it meant for practice, what would I want to know and how would I want it shared with me so that it wasn't incredibly overwhelming all at once, but rather it felt like I was entering into a conversation that was much bigger than I could ever know at the moment, but I'd find my way pretty quickly. Um, and so that was kind of the, the experience that I used to guide uh, the way that I helped frame the chapter. Excellent, thank you. Rachel, how about you? Can you tell us about your experience with the chapter's topic? So I think it, it comes from a couple of different places. Uh, I did not know anything, let's say, about disability until I started working with Zeke in grad school. And I remember when he told me his major interests, I was just like, interesting. I did not know that people thought about this. And um, it also just so happened that one of my cohort mates when I was in grad school was um, our, I cannot remember his title, but I feel like he's probably the director now um, of disability services at UMass, Ben Ostegi. And he, I remember talking to him and being like, oh, wow, this is things I never knew because I went to a very small college that uh, in retrospect is deeply ableist in many like core ways. So that was my one introduction working with Zeke on various research projects, but also my own, uh, let's say, proclivity for asking questions about what about shared language. I'm really interested in sort of what do we mean when we talk about insert whatever here. And so when I when we would have conversations about disability, I would often stop to think and be like, well, wait, are we talking about diagnoses? Are we talking about perception of the world? Are we talking about how, what are all of these things? Um, and I think that also most enlightening is that in the course of this work over the past several years, I have come to understand my own life experiences very differently. Um, I have a long, long history of anxiety and depression and just being able, like reframing the fact that like some days and especially at certain periods of my life, it was hard to do that daily task stuff um, and reframing that. And I think had I been in high school about 10 years later, it would have been a different experience. But thinking about that and even and still sorting out that part of my identity, which is not entirely sorted yet. And so that's that's what brings continues to bring me back to these topics and thinking about these chapters. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, talk to us a little bit about how it's been beneficial for you to participate in this experience. So writing about this um, topic. I think in many ways it has given me a chance to rethink about things that I have thought and written about before. Um, so we, we published that chapter in 2017. And then when we started to revisit it for this, I realized not necessarily that like my my mind hadn't changed about any of this, but there's just been more 
I've read more work and more work has been coming out from various, from disability studies and from higher ed. There's so much amazing disability related work happening now in 2022 versus 2015 when Zeke and I started working on some of these projects together. And this includes Zeke's own work. Um, and, and even just revisiting as my own understanding of things like intersectionality deepens revisiting these ideas um, and thinking about disability. Um, and also I, I think this is my like openest open access publications so far. I have, I have a couple open access publications, but nothing that was quite so much just like, here you go and here it is. And it's incredibly accessible, uh, both in terms of where you can find it and who can see it, but also, um, you know, plain language, useful things, implications for practice, examples. It was great. I liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed oh, I'm, so, it. I'm so glad. I, and we were so thankful um, to have such experienced people contribute to it, knowing that it would be um, presented that way and out there. Okay. Zeke, how about you? Yeah, so I, I think I'd echo Rachel in lots of ways. Um, I, I'd say my, my main takeaway is really about the ability to convey incredibly complicated ideas in a way that is straightforward and approachable. Um, so as Rachel mentioned, um, we, we started working on ideas similar to the ideas in this chapter for a piece that we published in 2017. Um, it appeared in a book that's about theory and method in higher education. Um, and we called it something like disability as a multivalent identity. So even in its title, it's inapproachable. And when I reread that piece today, I'm struck by the fact that I think that we're largely right. I, I think the ideas in that piece are very important, but I also don't know who exactly that piece is for. Um, so it's really clear that it's not the best first introduction to disability that someone might get. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also the sort of thing that anybody who has been reading and writing about disability for a while already knows. Um, and so one of the things that I, I think about a lot as a scholar is the difference between publishing something because that's part of my job and it's the way that my department chair and my dean count whether or not I'm successful and whether or not the department and the college are successful and publishing something that you expect to make a difference. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that really stands out about this piece is we set out to write it in the most approachable way we could, given the complexity of the topic and our limitations as authors. Um, I think you're probably getting a sense for the fact that Rachel and I tend towards the, the kind of big and complicated ideas, even in this conversation. So we did our best to, to, to make things uh, approachable in that chapter. But I don't think we sacrificed any of the complexity of the ideas, right? So some of the language is a little bit different. There's a little bit more scaffolding. Um, we don't have a lot of the really academic constructions that we love with multiple subordinate clauses and parentheses adding additional information and footnotes. And it's not like a choose your own adventure to try to, to read the, the piece. 
Um, but I, I think it works. And I, I think more than anything for me, the importance of plain language, straightforward presentation that really conveys the message mm -hmm. um, is, is a big takeaway. Uh, as, as academics, we oftentimes write to figure out what we think, and then we don't go back and edit because our goal is to get as many things out the door as quickly as possible. We rewrote this piece a lot, um, including at least once from, from scratch. Um, and I think it, it shows in a very good way. And so that's something that I will certainly take forward with me. Uh, that's not to say that I won't publish things just to publish them in the future. But if I actually want someone to do something with the work that I'm publishing, I will certainly approach it a little bit differently than I would have before I wrote this piece with Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get to know our authors a little bit more. Um, Zeke, can you share with us a little bit about your educational background and three words you, you would use to describe yourself? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the three words because they help to make sense of my educational background. So uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so I, I have OCD. Um, it first manifested itself in a very real way when I was about seven years old. Um, and it's been the thing that structured most of the way that I've experienced formal school systems. Um, and so at various times in my life, OCD has made me very good at school and terrible at school. And I'm the same person um, in, in those situations, right? So by the time that I got to college or was about to go to college, um, my OCD was presenting in a really challenging way. Um, in the context of high school, because high school is all about following rules, right? Like you, you show up at a certain time, you wait until the bell rings, you go to the next thing. Um, it's very kind of complicated from a social perspective. You're supposed to be doing lots of different things. Like there's a, there's a lot of cognitive load associated with it. I was terrible at high school. And so I wasn't sure that I'd be very good at college either. Um, and in point of fact, the first college course that I enrolled in, um, I ended up dropping because it was too overwhelming. My anxiety was too bad. It, it caused uh, a kind of ruminative leap, uh, uh, loop that I just couldn't escape. And so in order to drop that course, this is a long time ago. Um, now you could do this via a computer, but this is so long ago that I had to go in person with a <laughs> And so I did it. And the person at the front desk looked at the form and looked at me, and then they went in the back and they brought out um, Susan Campbell, who was the executive director of advising at the University of Southern Maine at the time. And Susan said, why are you dropping the course? And I was like, I can't do it. There's too many people. There's too much going on. And so Susan pulled me back into her office and looked on her computer and she found the smallest course in the entire university, ancient Greek, four other people, and I became a classics major. And I was a classics major until I was comfortable with college and then ended up switching to history um, and did fine. And as I was doing that, I started to get more and more involved in undergraduate student leadership and co-curriculum and all of that fun stuff. And I ended up as a student body president. Um, and I, I realized that my experience in college had 
changed my life, right? And it, it had stemmed from that one interaction with one caring person who didn't have to do that, right? Like it wasn't her job. At that point, Susan wasn't advising students anymore. Um, and she certainly didn't have to take an interest in me, particularly not at the end of what I'm sure was a very busy ad drop period. Um, but she did. And so I realized that I wanted to do that. And, and so I ended up with a master's degree in adult education and along the way started working in student affairs at a small college. Um, and eventually transitioned into a role in community-based education, um, doing um, high school to college access programming around the arts, um, and eventually got to the point where we were doing some really cool work, but we needed to prove that it worked to get more money to do it. And so that was where I went and decided to get a PhD. Um, my PhD is in higher ed. Um, along the way, I, I picked up a cognate in social theory. Um, and I never thought that I'd be a faculty member. I ended up as a faculty member by accident. Um, I, I simply kind of followed the direction of the educational system as it was kind of steering me. Um, and, and, you know, it, it worked out well, but I think an awful lot about the ways that it might not have. Um, and the people who at those key opportune moments where it could have gone really wrong um, nudged me in ways that caused it to work out really well for me. Um, and in saying that, I also admit that um, I have a wide variety of privileges that make it much easier for things to work out for me in educational systems um, than it would be for others. And also, um, as a disabled person who in particular has a hard time with the kind of illogic of higher ed institutions, um, I'm also kind of constantly confronted by the, the fundamentally ableist nature of, of higher education. Um, and so those are kind of twin pressures that, that structure my experience of higher ed. And as a result, they're things that I think an awful lot about in terms of my own work, my own research, the way that I approach advising and teaching, and now as an associate dean, the way that I think about administration, um, really recognizing that higher ed by design isn't really intended to work for students. It's an accident the way that it's set up. Um, and so if we want it to actually work, we, we kind of have to we have to put some pressure on the system and, and kind of push it back into an alignment where it works well. But we also need to recognize that students are kind of their own experts on what works for them. And so if a student shows up and says, I need the smallest course in this incredibly large and overwhelming university, it probably makes sense for us to listen to that student. Um, and so all of that experience of educational systems really stems from my, my kind of three words, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, structures everything that I, I, I've done as a student and everything I do as a faculty member and a scholar now. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. Rachel, how about you? Let's get to know you a little bit more as well. Oh my gosh, three words. Uh, I, I, I guess maybe one of my three words could be indecisive because I can't, I can't think of three. Um, I have many and sometimes I hate talking after Zeke because he's so eloquent and then I'm just here. Um, 
I think if I if I can borrow my co-author's structure, a really good word for me would be anxious. I was an anxious child. I was an anxious high schooler, a high achieving, you know, over over scheduled um, and remain over scheduled to this day. Uh, but I went I I went to um, a small women's college. I went to Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia, largely because uh, I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be a physicist. Uh, and my mom at the time was working for NASA and was just like, well, you know, you should think about a women's college if you want to go into science. And I was just like, no. And then I, it was incredible. Um, and it's very small. It has a student body of 1,200 students, uh, all told, including the few graduate students that are there. Uh, and I remember being just shocked at the size because it was so much bigger than my high school. Um, and I failed spectacularly at being a physicist. Uh, I have never, I, I have failed three classes in my life and it was my first semester sophomore year, uh, physics and math classes. And it also coincided with one of the worst phases of anxiety in my entire existence. Um, and so I became, I, I was really deeply anxious and concerned. And I had to go to my dean's office. Uh, we didn't have academic advisors. We just had deans assigned to everybody. Uh, and so I went to my dean's office uh, and he was like, so Rachel, you're having some troubles. And I was like, yes. However, I have it under control. I'm changing my major. And I became a historian because I like history. And it was, I was just like, oh, I can do that. That's fine. Uh, and so I guess a second, a second word would be historian. Um, I have my BA in history and I specialize in medieval history and I have a master's degree in history uh, in which I yet again specialized in medieval history. Um, and about that time, uh, you know, I had graduated right before the Great Recession and I worked in development alumni relations for a while. And then I went back to grad school and it was rough. Um, and I was still really interested in being in, in a higher ed environment. I, after I graduated with my master's, I moved to Chicago to be with my partner. Uh, and I was working for an insurance company because I was I, I couldn't get a job because uh, somewhere in the recession, people started the, that that master's degree credential really ramped up. Uh, and all of a sudden jobs that I was getting interviews for when I was leaving high, sc uh, high school, ah, college, uh, I now needed more credentials that they were not interested in my master's degree in history. Um, and I liked higher ed and I was really interested by problems that I had seen and experienced that like, why is the hist historical profession so weird? Like, why are we overproducing PhDs and why is there no public support? And so I was thinking about what I would possibly want to do. And I was like, well, I really wanna go back and work for a university. So I guess I should get that master's degree in higher ed. And I, uh, when I applied to UMass, I had the faculty member who was doing the master's admissions was just like, well, this one has a master's degree. She shouldn't need another one. And forwarded me to Ryan Wells, who was doing the PhD. Well, at the time it was an EDD. Um, 
admissions and they were just like, hey, do you want a doctoral degree? And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I, I don't know, I just moved to Massachusetts. I do this a lot, I just move places. Um, and so I did my uh, PhD at UMass Amherst. Um, and I feel like, again, indecisive is a great word for me because now I can't decide how to end this story. Um, and I worked with Zeke and uh, after that, I, I did a postdoc at Iowa State, and I am now working at St. Cloud State, um, where I continue as an anxious faculty member. Um, though now, I, I think that one of the nice things about having my experience um, and, my, and my particular existence um, is that I feel like I'm still an outsider to a certain extent to higher ed because I, I just don't have, I don't have the student affairs background. I was never a residence assistant. I did a bunch in college, but not, none of it typical. And because my college was tiny, we did not have the same structures. Um, so I feel like I bring that perspective to many of my classes and my research and my service, but also this perspective this long history, especially with my anxiety, is just when I get students who are just like, oh, nobody on listening to this podcast can see me, um, you know, shaking on Zoom because they're so worried about their chapter two for their dissertation or a class and me being like, listen, you need to take a deep breath and you need to think about, <laughs> we need to talk about the role that anxiety has in making your life harder. Um, I think it has made me a very empathetic teacher and, and advisor um, and often very sad at times for how anxious some of my students are, but also hopefully one who can, you know, I had, grad school is hard and dissertations are hard, but I had a relatively painless experience. And I think it was because to a certain extent, Zeke really understood me. And he was able to really be calming, a calming influence in my life. Um, and I hope that that is what I can do for my students now that I am in this position. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it was all very helpful. And I think it was really helpful to hear also um, faculty members affirm that um, it's not easy. Thank you both of you for sharing that. A little bit, now that we know a little bit more about both of you, if you could wish anyone in the world to know the information in your chapter, who would it be and why? So I, I would love it if I could convince uh, a, a campus president or chancellor and their board of trustees to learn what's in this chapter. Um, and, and the reason for that is that higher ed is an incredibly normative field. Um, and it's also an incredibly ableist institutional field. Um, so there aren't terribly many um, higher ed institutions that are doing a good job with regard to disability inclusion from my own particular perspective. Um, and I admit that it's shaped by my own ideological beliefs. Um, but what I know about higher ed institutions is that when one institution begins to behave differently and begins to see an advantage from behaving differently, everybody else scrambles to do that thing as quickly as possible. 
Um, and we've used it to build climbing walls and lazy rivers and things like that. There's no reason that it shouldn't also work for disability inclusion. And so I think our, our chapter and the volume more broadly makes a case for the fact that disability inclusion isn't as hard as we would like to believe it is, um, and that disability exclusion is a choice. Um, and I think the pandemic has also helped to make this case, right? We went from being totally unable to accommodate remote and hybrid instruction to doing it overnight. Um, and then as soon as institutions were ready to come back to campus, we forgot everything that we had learned for the most part. But both of those things were a choice. It was a choice to do a thing that was briefly very difficult and then became normal. And it was a choice to abandon that in preference for um, able normed environments once again. And, and that's not to say that every disabled person benefits from working in virtual environments, but many do. And, and the point really there is that institutions can exist in a lot of different forms simultaneously um, and choosing which form is very much a choice. And so I think if we were able to get this information in front of a, a president and their board of trustees, and they were to actually act on the sorts of recommendations that exist in this monograph broadly construed, they would actually create a more inclusive institution. And then what they would find is that running an institution that is truly inclusive um, in a society where one in four people have a disability of some sort, gives them an incredible advantage in terms of the ability to recruit students. So everybody in higher ed is scrambling constantly to recruit enough students, but nobody is actually promoting full inclusion for folks with disabilities. An institution that does that has a much larger student recruitment pool to draw from. Um, moreover, there are incredibly talented faculty and staff who are disabled who may not be able to work in the way that higher ed institutions have normalized that environment. I have a colleague at, at UMass, Lee Badgett, who looks at the, the opportunity costs of, of gender uh, discrimination and discrimination based upon sexuality and shows that firms that discriminate on the basis of gender and sexuality actually underperform the market. There's no reason that that same thing doesn't occur with regard to disability. So if you cut out a fourth of your potential labor pool, incredibly talented people with unique perspectives on the world, you're at a disadvantage relative to an institution that hasn't done that. So it's really clear from what I'm saying that I don't think that higher ed institutions do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I think they do them for institutional logics, like we need to recruit more students and we wanna recruit the best faculty and staff possible. But I think what our manuscript does, the monograph writ large, is makes a case for the fact that we can actually include people with, disabil uh, people with disabilities by design. And by including disabled people, we get to benefit from their unique skills and experiences and perspectives on the world. And so if, if I could get one group of people to read this, it would be the president and the board at one institution because I think as soon as one institution does this, and when I say one institution, I mean an institution that 
has not historically identified as itself as a disability serving institution, but instead everybody thinks of as, hey, it's just one of us doing, doing its higher ed thing, everybody else is gonna follow along because that institution is going to have access to an incredible pool of students, faculty and staff. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I think that those of us with disabilities bring a different way of seeing the world and it can only benefit um, who we're trying to recruit and also who we're trying to keep. So thank you for sharing that. Rachel, same question for you now. Um, if you could wish anyone in the world to know this information in the chapter, um, who would it be and why, or what group would it be and why? I actually wish that faculty members would read it. Uh, and particularly, and this is like my, my raison d'etre, I guess, uh, particularly faculty members in STEM fields. Um, I mean, overall, if, if you, if anybody ever has conversations with me on a very regular basis, I'm either just like, uh, faculty members are just the best. They do so much work. It is so good. Or I'm just like, what monsters? Um, which I think we can hold both things as true. Um, I know so many wonderful and well-meaning faculty members who just, it's not even that they don't want to understand, they're not actively resisting it, but they just are entrenched in a worldview about how work should look and how student work should look and how teaching should look and how learning looks. And I'm not the most creative teacher. I, and I will say that straight off. I don't do, I am, and I'm also probably not the most accessible. I still have a lot of reading and I, you know, it's a heavy workload, um, but just having a sense that one's own way of processing the world is not the only way that people process the world or the most valid. Um, goodness, I hope people don't process the world like I do. That's just a lot. Um, but particularly faculty that we've, that, you know, Zeke and I have found in, in our research together and in other projects, um, and that other researchers have found the ways that faculty members can be, and particularly in STEM, can be deeply resistant to, and is not resistant to change, but resistant to the idea that putting your slides up for everybody's use would make everybody's lives easier. Uh, it's not special treatment. It's, are your slides that great? Um, but just this, this feeling that A, disabilities look a particular way. B, that learning looks a particular way. And C, that we know that I, I guess maybe like that we can predict impact of our actions on people. And it's really, it's a question that I still get tangled up with a lot, like thinking about sort of not disciplinary knowledge, but like skills, like I, how do I teach my graduate students writing skills that I know they need for graduate study and for professional work and all of these other things without being uh, ableist? about it without in classes and it has a lot to do with classism and white supremacy and all of these other things that are wrapped up in higher ed and sort of how it's a big it's a big question that I often have when I am either talking to faculty friends who are not in my field or doing research with students about faculty members or even just 
talk thinking about faculty work and I think that they also because we don't have great training for faculty members and we don't have great training around disability in general understanding these very complex ways that disability both manifests itself for people like people disabled folks are not all the same and we don't it's not the same for everybody and also that the way that we define disability is really really complex and it has a lot of weight and like discursive meanings that's I guess so yeah I really would like faculty members to know more about this and to understand that it's not that it's uh, it's like both a normal part of human diversity and also something that we have been actively making choices, as Zeke said, to exclude for a very, very long time. Um, and it's not that hard mm -hmm. to be better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Now for our listeners who maybe are unfamiliar, can you tell us what STEM is? Oh, yep, sorry. It's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. And so I appreciate both of you for sharing a little bit of how simple some of the things are to be able to do, because I do think there is a stereotype that comes along with the disability label that it's going to cost a lot and it's going to be hard work and take a lot of time. And in many ways, Rachel, I think we're all still working um, to make all of our practice, whatever we do. Um, more accessible and probably always will be. So let's get into the chapter a little bit more. Um, I asked each of our authors if they would identify a passage that they found meaningful, and I'm going to ask them to read it and then share with us a little bit about why they found it meaningful or why they picked this one to share with us today. Um, Zeke's, Zeke is going to go first, um, and I'm going to ask him again to read aloud the passage, and you'll find his passage on page 21 in the monograph. So the, the passage that I chose um, is influenced by the work of J. Timothy Delage um, from a book called Academic Ableism, and I'll, I'll spare everybody the parenthetical citation as I'm reading it. Um, there's no direct quotations, but if you want to know more about the sorts of ideas that I'm introducing in this passage, it's worth taking a look at Delage's work. Um, so here it goes. Disability is a confounding term to define. The historical creation of the idea of disability is predicated upon the application of power and the use of that power to label some bodies and minds as normative and others as problematic. For these reasons, we hesitate to replace older definitions of disability with a new formulation that continues to rest on the demarcation and subsequent valuation of bodies and difference. To this day, the medicalization of disability continues to raise the specter of this historic formulation. It is an institutional process, sometimes divorced from the wishes, experiences, and best interests of the persons labeled and identified as disabled. So the reason that I, I picked that passage is, I, I would say that if, if readers take one thing from this chapter, I, I really hope it's that. Um, there's not a ton of value from my point of view in knowing exactly what disability is um, because disability is complicated and messy and it's different for different people in different places at different points in time. Um, so there are there are points in my own life where I don't feel disabled at all. And there are other times where I feel so fundamentally stuck by a system that doesn't work for me that I'm not sure how I'm even going to move forward. 
Um, and so both of those things are true at the same time in my life and in the lives of people who are disabled, broadly speaking. Um, and they vary across contexts. And so I, I guess when you're trying to define something that behaves in such a paradoxical way, but in a society where we tend to want to reduce things to like binary variables that we can put in a regression model, one of my fundamental impulses is to resist that. And so I, I hope that people who listen to this podcast and who might read this chapter would do the same. Um, and to really just sit with the messiness and the complexity of disability, because unless you do, it's really hard to understand the many different ways that ableism and disableism and related systems of oppression can intertwine in the lives of disabled people um, to produce really kind of unexpected outcomes sometimes. So I, I think that's, that, that was my goal in, in picking this passage is just to say that it's okay not to be able to say exactly what disability is. Um, and it's okay to just say it's, it's really complicated and to really need a conversation to unpack what disability means. Um, and I, I would say that's one of the things that I've really valued about the, the time we've spent together today is that we've, we've actually gotten to talk about disability in a lot of different ways, both personal and theoretical and driven by empirical literature and also by anecdote. And I feel like all of those ways of thinking about disability are essential because at the end of the day, you don't really know exactly what disability is. You have a feeling for what disability is. Um, and I, I feel like one of the things that we miss oftentimes in our student affairs prep programs by not talking about disability is that kind of deeply intuitive feel that we actually use an awful lot in student affairs practice. Um, we don't always know why what we're doing is right. We usually have a sense for why it's right. And it's more likely that what we're actually going to do, what we're going to feel, uh, will be a good reflection of reality if we've had an awful lot of time to, to think about things and lots of different ideas have been shared with us. And so we're not just going totally from a gut feeling. It's, it's actually informed by a lot. But at the end of the day, I really do believe that student affairs is a profession where we read and flex darn near constantly. We make so many decisions um, so quickly that we can't actually stop and think about what we're doing and why we're doing it all the time. And so in order to do that, you don't need to know exactly what disability is, but you need to have a feel for how disability works in the world and might shape the experiences of the students that you work with. Yes, absolutely. We've been talking about the concept of disability in so many different ways. And so if you find yourself as a practitioner um, making decisions about disability and um, you've used a simple definition of disability because you wanted to make the decision quickly um, and you've reflected on that and had that realization, um, but yet you did it in the past. All I want to say to you is it's okay. Um, here's some resources so that you can learn and grow and maybe do better. 
um, across the board that would apply to everyone in higher education. But I would also argue it apply at this topic applies to everyone sort of in life. So thank you, Zeke, for reading that and, and selecting that for us. Rachel also um, selected a passage, and I'm going to have her read it. And you can find her passage on page 16. And then I'll ask her the same question in terms of why she decided to select this passage for us to read. Mine is much longer, but also because Zeke and I can sometimes be on a wavelength, also deeply influenced by uh, Domage 2017. So if you haven't read Academic Ableism, go read it because it's amazing. Um, and so it begins like this. As we argued previously, disability simultaneously operates as an individual level variation and how a person's body or mind works relative to societal assumptions about how a person's body and mind should work. An interaction between a person's body or mind and the physical or intellectual spaces inhabited by other people and the embodiment of systems of power, privilege and oppression within society that affirmatively value able-bodiedness and able-mindedness while negatively valuing people with disabilities. The ways people navigate these intersecting manifestations of disability is complex generally and can be particularly fraught in higher education institutions that often prize particular forms of intellectual or physical ability. Consistent with this framing, we describe some of the specific ways in which people with disabilities in higher education settings might have differentiated experiences relative to their peers arguing that until institutions begin to prioritize inclusivity, these manifestations of difference function as design features of disabilities rather than accidental, accidental bugs within the system. In other words, who is included or excluded in higher education is determined in part by the tacit assumptions higher education institutions make about how people exist in the world. The educators at colleges and universities have enough knowledge of human diversity to know that disabilities represent a significant way that people's experiences might vary, yet continue to normalize the experiences of the able-bodied and able-minded. It is therefore reasonable to conclude that the maintenance of inaccessible, exclusive institutions is a choice, whether made intentionally or not. Um, and I chose that partially because it's actually a really nice precy of our argument um and partially and, and you can hear the echoes in what zeke has already mentioned about that like being exclusive in these ways is a choice we're making um but it also and this might come from my like current kind of nihilist existentialist crisis that like nothing we're doing really matters anymore um but that <laughs> higher education, um, I think that as a field, higher education and student affairs is trying to and is having a lot of trouble coming to grips that the I with the idea that higher ed might be rotten at its core. Um, and that's not to mean that it's not a important experience that now many, many people have or that it is now really baked into our sort of economic and social class structures. Um, and it's also like something I love. I love, I loved college. I mostly liked grad school. I love teaching and research and service. Uh, and, but at the same time, and this is 
a big part of, of Dolmage's argument is that ableism, able-bodiedness and able-mindedness is not a uh, accidental side effect. It is a it is a design feature that like, this is partially what higher education was made to do. Much like higher education is, is, is racist at its foundation. It was not made to be um, equitable and inclusive and all of these words that we really want it to be now. Um, and that is not to say that it cannot and that we shouldn't strive to be better. And I think that it comes down a lot to the sort of individual institution tension that even when our institutions are failing us in a variety of ways, um, that when we as educators or practitioners or leaders or whatever you want to say, um, can't, can't afford to not exert a, a, a better influence in our spheres that like Higher education is like a big social institution I have some concerns with. And it is a deep, as I said, existential crisis that I have been having for a while. Uh, the pandemic has not helped. Um, but higher education as an institution might be flawed. But that doesn't mean that like I as an educator cannot continually to be, continue to be more inclusive, just like, you know, we try to continue to be ever more anti-racist, et cetera. Um, and those two are also really wrapped up with each other and there's all sorts of connections to make. But that was really why I chose it, that I was just like, well, A, nice description of our argument. B, uh, institutions are, it's not accidental. Like this did not come from, from nowhere. It is a structural part of higher education that we have to come to grips with. Um, which is like hard and kind of grim. So you're welcome. Yes, thank you. And I think that the existential crisis brought about by the pandemic, many, many are feeling. Um, so, so know that. And I appreciate you picking this um, passage as well um, for the way in which it highlights um, sort of what we had talked about also earlier, which is the choice that is being made. So I thank both of you for what you selected. Um, before I say goodbye to them today, uh, I wonder if there's anything that either of you um, would like to share that we haven't gotten to. So I feel like Rachel and I have, have done a fairly good job not being incredibly strange in our discussion today. And at the risk of, of heading in a very strange direction, um, one, one thing that I, I've been thinking about throughout our conversation is the idea of the cost of disability. Um, and disability does have a very real cost associated with it. Sometimes it's financial, but other times it's um, temporal. It takes more time to be a disabled person or emotional. Um, being subject to disability microaggressions has emotional consequences. Um, sometimes it's relational. Um, it, it, it affects the way that we relate to others. And I guess the point that I would make is right now we hide those costs because we pass them to individuals um, and particularly to disabled people. Even the logic of the ADAA is such that a disabled person has to be denied accommodation that they're legally entitled to, and then they are obligated to pursue redress. 
Um, so that that comes at a cost, both in terms of the initial denial of accommodation and then also the cost of, of waiting to gain access, the cost of pursuing a legal remedy. Um, and we do that time and time and time again. Um, so even something as simple as the way we design a course, well, yes, it's going to be a lot of work for me to go through and to run every one of my PDFs through an OCR uh, process. But if I don't do it, then statistically four or five students in my 20 person class probably do have to do it. And moreover, there's probably other people who are not disabled in that class who would also benefit from it. So all I've really done is save myself the time, but I've actually caused four times or maybe even more than that as much time to be spent. Um, and so I, I think about that a lot in the context of the way that we pass hidden costs on to folks in higher ed. Um, and, and more often than not, the people that we pass those costs on to are people who have identities, often multiple identities, that are minoritized within an institutional context, right? So ableism and disableism and racism and heterogenderism, they're all experienced intersectionally. And, and the, the kind of opportunity cost of exclusion stacks for folks who have these multiple minoritized identities. Um, and it sends a really powerful message about who's included and who's excluded in higher ed. Um, and this is the point where that argument, which seemingly is, is quite reasonable, becomes a little bit strange. Rachel and I have made the argument elsewhere that higher ed is a total institution. Um, total institutions substitute the logic of um, kind of an external environment for their own, right? So we, we've created this weird system where I'm supposed to publish something that someone will never read because that's what my dean and department chair value. And somehow that makes sense to me, right? It actually does intuitively make sense to me at this point. Um, we've created this environment where it's perfectly reasonable for a student affairs professional to take on debt, spend multiple years in graduate education, and then take a job as a hall director for thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year if they're lucky and have responsibilities that technically could span the entirety of their week living, working, et cetera, right? Like that is, a, that is a form of logic that doesn't exist outside of higher ed that we accept as routine within higher ed. And the danger of that, um, and this isn't my argument, this is Foucault's argument, is that when we accept a total institutional logic, it resignifies who we ourselves are, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's not just that this is true in the institutional context, it also tells me who I am as a disabled person in the context of an institution. So I become the problematic variable and not the institution that's ableist because the institution has its own logic that makes sense. And so at, at the risk of, of making what was otherwise a, I think reasonably made argument very strange, I, I think one of the things that I, I really wanna make sure that we emphasize today is just the idea that ableism is so routine and habitual in, in academia that we're training disabled students, faculty, and staff to think that they're the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes an awful lot of work to get to the point where 
our students, faculty, and staff are able to say, no, actually, it's the institution that's been the problem all along. And so until we make that process visible, both the process of normalizing exclusion and also the process of unlearning that exclusion, I really worry that um, the, the kind of powerfully normative institutional logic that says, well, anybody who's not able-bodied and able-minded is the problem uh, wins in the end. Yeah. So I appreciate you bringing that up because I think cost can be defined many different ways. And I think that it highlights that as well. Rachel, did you have anything else you wanted to share? I think that one of the things we didn't really talk about this chapter is that we do actually go through the various weird weird and complex ways that we try to define disability. And one of the, the ones that is the most interesting and troubling nexus for me is the sort of medico-social identity that disability can have, that it is involved with diagnose, medical diagnosis. And that's a whole other Foucault thing that we could talk about. Um, but thinking about the, the ways that uh, we often rely on diagnosis, which means then it's a very medicalized identity and identity is um, sort of constituted through very imperfect medical knowledge. And, um, and that plays a big role in the way that we manage disability in higher ed. It's not a self-determination uh, in many ways, and especially to, to get access to a lot of um, things like accommodations, which are like, they're not, that's not the end all and be all of what we can do for students and faculty and staff, but um, having to get through a gatekeeper in terms of diagnosis um, is, a, is interesting and troubling. And especially because there's some, you know, we have found in our research that identifying with a diagnosis does not necessarily mean identifying with disability. Um, and that having, I mean, I know that when I finally, finally after college went to a doctor and just to have them so easily be like, oh yeah, you have an anxiety disorder. I was like, oh, there's a name to my hysteria. This is great. Um, but in ha having that, it was then made made available to me as an identity, a person who is not crazy, but just anxious. Um, and, and that's something we didn't really talk about. And it's really interesting. And the same with the sort of legal aspects of these definitions beyond, um, you know, that there is a legal meaning to all of this, um, as well as the sort of environmental contextual um, experiential parts of it. Um, I guess to continue my theme, also existential. Um, so it's, it's a, I guess I can close with, it's an interesting chapter. I recommend reading it. There you go. I like that closing. Um, and you are hundred percent correct. I think there's a lot of things that you just shared there that we could, continue our conversation about um, and hope sometime that we get a chance to do that. 
Um, I want to um, thank both of you for joining me today to discuss Disability Defined, Thinking Intersectionally About Terminology and Experience, which is chapter three of the monograph, Creating Inclusivity While Providing Accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I encourage you, as does Rachel, and I'm pretty sure Zeke does as well, um, to do so. The publication is available for free and can be found at myacpa.org. A link to the publication will also be added to the notes of this podcast. I hope our discussion today was beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to season two, including ability of the Coalition for Disability Talkin' Disability podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate, subscribe, and review us wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And be sure to come back next week for a discussion about creating access in the college and university environment. Until then, this is your host, Sarah Shopper, and don't forget to include ability. This podcast was created by the Coalition for Disability, ACPA College Student Educators International. It was produced, recorded, and edited by Sarah Shopper. Including ability is season two of the Talk and Disability podcast for the Coalition for Disability.